Father, as we place ourselves before you and place these texts before our minds now, we ask that the same Spirit who enabled these to be breathed by you would breathe them somehow into our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So we Anglicans, uh, uh, along with lots of others, churches around the world, uh, Easter for us is not a day, it's uh, 50 days uh, from Easter to Pentecost. So I want to begin this morning by just alerting you, if you'll open or just get out your bulletin to this couple of paragraphs that I wrote here on the front of our bulletin that we've been using this Easter season, and we'll let this serve this morning as our introduction to the message. Pope John Paul said, do not abandon yourselves to despair. We are the Easter people, and hallelujah is our song. This Easter season, we'll focus on readings from the biblical book of Revelation. That's what comes up in the lectionary this year. And as we carefully and prayerfully place these Bible passages before our minds, we'll ask, how shall I walk and worship knowing that I'm an Easter person who lives in the beginning of the end? the age in which we anticipate the new heavens and the new earth. Well, one way to think about that is this. Easter provides the certainty that allows those who find life challenging to keep walking in faith while they wait for a spouse to marry, a new job, to finish the last class before graduation, or to anticipate a friendship to be reconciled. Easter faith is both backbone and joy for the journey. It changes everything. So our reading in the gospel this morning that we just heard from Dennis, you know, puts before us this phrase that, you know, any of us who grew up here in Orange County a lot about uh, the, great, the great tribulation <laughs> and, uh, and uh, when it would come and how it would come and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, however one thinks about the Great Tribulation in terms of where it fits on a timeline, uh, there's no doubt that John was speaking to a people who were going to experience Great Tribulation, and who did, and then all humankind has experienced Tribulation for the last 2,000 years, and then, you know, whatever's to come is to come. So, 2,000 years of suffering, right up to Boston and the fertilizer explosion in Texas, and the earthquake in China a couple days ago, and yesterday afternoon where those five young guys perished in an avalanche in the mountains of Colorado. So from the time John wrote this right up to our moment today, John's vision of heaven is the concrete reality against which we see suffering. So this series in Revelation we've called Revealing a Better Way. And this morning I just want to say I hope a few hopeful things about how it is that Revelation reveals to us a better way through suffering. Now remember I want to say, we would never want to say to a young wife or to a mother, oh gee, you know, don't worry that your son or your spouse just passed away in that avalanche as if it's not real. It is real. It's stunningly, alarmingly horribly real, but it is not the most real thing happening, for we are Easter people. 
And we live in an age in which we are invited to take the reality of our story, no matter how painful or suffering it might be, and to place it in this bigger story that seems unreal, right? Like when you read Daniel or Ezekiel or any of these apocalyptic texts, you know, you read Revelation, it's what seems unreal. And so we sort of hold it at arm's length because the pain that we can feel now or the suffering or the confusion, that's really real and really in our face. And so we're left in this sort of confused state. And so one of the big decisions that we all have to make as followers of Jesus is to decide, do we believe that the kinds of things that John is talking about here in this revelation are actually true? Are they the kinds of things we can rely upon? I don't mean true in a doctrinal sense. What I'm talking about would include a doctrinal sense, but I mean something way different than that. I mean, can you rely on it the way I'm just relying on these steps? Is it the kind of thing that you think you could place your confidence in? Because if not, then we are not really walking in the sort of the light or the revelation of what it means uh, to be the Easter people. Now, when John was writing Revelation, he was writing in a time, you know, seeing this vision when there was a lot of tension between what we might call the communities of the Lamb, as he calls them in Revelation 7, versus Rome and Caesar and the powers. And a big, sort of the most public part of this was that the Roman Empire was claiming to be the source of salvation. So do you think the Roman Empire was saying, we'll get you to heaven when you die? Nope. That's not what they were thinking, and it's not, not what this biblical word for salvation in this text means. The biblical word for salvation in this text means rescue. It means something like to take you out of your problems and put you in a place of peace, to rescue you from danger. That's what that word means. So Revelation, what John's seeing of the capital R reality of the heavens, wherever they are, what John is seeing there sees through this. It sees through the charade of the Roman claims to be able to save human beings and says, no. No, 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 a thousand times no, salvation belongs to our God. To no political power, to no political uh, party, to no way of humans organizing themselves economically. Salvation doesn't belong to any of that. It can't and it never will. Salvation belongs to our God. This sort of odd, mysterious God we find in these apocalyptic texts. The parts that make it seem so unreal to us. And what John wants us to know is that this is what's actually real and that any victory, any rescue from suffering, any ability to get through suffering, this belongs to our God. And of course, the heavenly hosts respond, amen to that. Yes, that's the truth. Well, here's the difficulty for us who live in Orange County in 2013. This witness, if we were to actually take it serious, will bring us immediately into direct conflict with the powers of this world and its empires. Because pain and suffering are part of every human life, and misunderstanding this makes God humanity's biggest disappointment. Now, let me say that again. 
because suffering comes into our life and we don't seem to be able to control it and get victory over us. This makes God to humanity. I've said this before. Everybody has a beef with God. And now we've just got hundreds of more people with beefs with God in China and in Boston and in Colorado and in Texas. The beefs with God just keep growing. He is humanity's biggest disappointment. He does not seem to come through the way we want him to, when we want him to, how we want him to. And so then this leaves us with a fundamental choice. And I just want to say to you, you will not follow Jesus if you think you are left to the whims of storms and, you know, some government to give you some sort of ultimate hope through that. We really do have to make a choice to walk into this story that has its own perplexities but walk into it believing that what John saw was actually the capital R reality of what's going on that lies beyond the material world and walk into that. Because suffering is a part of all of our stories, but what Revelation wants us to see this morning is it's not the end of the story. That he, look at your Revelation text if you can, I think it's on the second page. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And that word for shelter there means like to pitch a tent. So just imagine any of the victims or maybe family members that you have who are ill or whatever. And so picture it, like really picture it. Really broken, really sick, really whatever they are. I'm not, I would never ask you as your pastor to deny what's real. I'm saying the opposite. Go there, go as much as you can. Even picture ruptured blood vessels if you need to and blame and veins. Go as far as you need to. See it really real. And then pitch a tent over it. And go, this happens under the watchful eye of my God. To him belongs salvation from this. For the day's coming, as the text said, that never again will people hunger or thirst. For the lamb will be at the center of the throne. He'll be their shepherd. He'll lead them to springs of living water. The reality that that John in this revelation is inviting us into is this, that the one God who created the world, the God with whom they've been in relationship has already won the victory. And that those those who follow the lamb will not ever experience ultimate harm. It doesn't mean no harm. It doesn't mean no suffering. It doesn't mean no hardship. It means no ultimate harm. And really, our gospel reading, if you want to look at it, is telling us the same story in a different way. It begins with the Feast of Dedication that we know as Hanukkah. And Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication, it remembers every year the heroic faith of the Maccabees, these group of warriors who tore down the image of Zeus and reclaimed the worship of God in Jerusalem. So this is what's happening. So then Jesus finds himself in kind of a typical debate with the religious leaders of his day. And he says to them, the works that I do, and that is to say, these public evidences that you've seen of who I am and what I'm about, these things I do in my Father's name and they bear witness about me. But he says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So Jesus is saying, I'm this life that John showed us in heaven I'm now manifesting that to you now. Remember, they said, Lord, show us the Father. Well, if you've seen me, you've seen him. And so what Jesus is saying to these people is you you have to make a choice. 
Are you going to live in this other reality? Are you going to live in mine? You're not of my sheep because you're following someone else. You're following some other explanation for the world. Maybe a Marxist explanation for the world. Maybe a capitalistic explanation for the world. Maybe whatever. You're following some other explanation for the world and how this works. And so you're, you're not my sheep. And so you wander out of the tent. And Jesus is constantly trying to call people into this reality where they would actually experience the love and the deliverance in the sense of salvation of God. So when Jesus says a notion like you're following someone else, that raises for us two really key discipleship questions. Who do you follow? And from whom are you learning to do life? There's probably no bigger question that you'll ever ask and answer than from whom are you learning to do life? When it's easy, medium, or hard. So then when Jesus says, look, my father is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch his sheep out of his hand, Jesus is taking us back then in a sense to that scene in Revelation. That this is what's real. All, everything, everybody, any eventuality, God is greater than all. And it's fascinating if you look back at your Revelation text, that John doesn't tell us what to do. He doesn't give us anything to do. You know, if, if this were a sermon, he would have been guilty of giving no practical application, right? He would have flunked the class in homiletics right here. No practical application. Except for this, he invites us in the midst of suffering to see, to recognize, to be alert to, to live in the reality, small r reality, of this capital R reality that exists in the sphere of God. So he invites us to see ultimate reality, to be attentive recipients to this vision that's given by God, to see the glorious completion of God's saving promises that began with Abraham and Sarah and who end with the fully restored, fully diverse family of God in the new heavens, in the new earth. Which, by the way, if you wonder what the 144,000 is, there it is. It's restored Israel plus the Gentiles. It's the new people of God. Now, instead of this vision, though, this is where we struggle. Instead of this vision that John's putting before us, the usual way of making us safe in this world is to try to win the battle for control of one little part of the fallen world, right? Ever been involved in a cubicle war at work? Or who gets the most square feet in the storage bin, right? That's the usual way of doing humanity, all the way from there up into huge marriage disputes and into world wars. It's all about controlling our little part of this fallen world. And I just want to say to you, that's where these two choices lead. When you say, I'm a follower of Jesus and therefore I'm always safe in his kingdom, then I don't have to fight over my little place in the fallen world. I can trust God for my little place in this little fallen world. But when we're not doing that, when you're left to only protect and fend and provide for yourself, then that's what explains this. And so John gives us this invitation that says, the way things are in heaven can be entered into today. It's reality, making meaning of our reality. 
The scene from heaven is meant to draw us to see God's goodness in the face of overwhelmingly contradictory evidence. How do you take your bulletin and put it in someone's face in Boston? All the evidence is overwhelmingly contradictory everywhere. But this picture that John is seeing from God invites us into a different kind of reality that catches up everything else into it and in the end explains it. And in fact, John said in uh, you know, Revelation 2 that a lukewarm reception to this vision leaves one vulnerable to be, being reassimilated into the powers of the world. Like if you have a lukewarm reception to this, remember that really great, wasn't it a King James word, spew? Remember that? Remember that? Lukewarm and spew in the same sentence? That was so cool when I was a teenager. <laughs> and of course, the, the notion there is that, that when one sees this and just has this kind of passive, lukewarm reaction to it, it not only doesn't work, but leaves you in a worse kind of place. And the reason is this, we cannot be loyal to the values of the powers, as Paul would put it, and of Jesus at the same time. And this is the New Testament concept of choice, decision, and conversion. And you should never lose it. I don't care what's happening in our culture. This is not about belittling or browbeating people into our religion. This is about asking people to make the most fundamental human choice they will ever make. Are you going to live according to your story as you're writing it? Or are you going to change? Are you going to convert? Are you going to take a step into someone else's story? I mean, I really get with my whole heart, and I accept the present inclination towards tolerance and accepting others and all that. I get it. It's actually a good thing. And as far as it goes, it really works. But here's what you have to hear. The nations, the powers, the systems, the religious uh, religions of this world, they're not telling the same story as Jesus. And thus, we have to choose the one that we think is telling the story that makes the both sense of our, best sense of our world and the world. So for me, I'm happy to let Jesus, the one that shows up in your Revelation text there, I'm happy to just let the lamb who was slain, the one who's being worshiped in the courts of heaven to just stand in history. And I've spent my life since I was 19 trying to help people see him and understand him, but I feel no need to defend him. Let him stand. Just show people. You can add up the four other biggest religions in the world and they don't have anybody who compares to that lamb who was slain and sits at the middle of human history, the only one with the power to take the scroll of God and unroll its seals, the only one with whom God could entrust all of human history. From Genesis to us ruling and reigning with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Just let him stand there, unapologetic. Just follow him. And if anybody asks you, tell them you are. And if they ask you why, tell them why. But I'm telling you, there is no one in 20 of the religions who even comes close to him if we'll just let him stand there in the middle of human history and say, that's our guy. I'm a Jesus freak. So then this story in Revelation calls us then to identify as faithful witnesses to this Jesus, to follow the Lamb in a society that's defined by practices of what Revelation calls the beast or the whore. Do you see what God's showing John here? Here's this Lamb 
Not, and not just a lamb, but slain. This makes no sense. But the practices of the beast and the practices of the whore, they seem to be winning the day. Like if we were to take a vote right now, you know, John thinking, this slain lamb, nobody gets that. The talk on the streets are we're just all losers following another failed Messiah. But what God is showing John is, I know the beast and the whore, it looks like it's winning, but John, this is what's really real. That Jesus really is not just the lamb, but the good shepherd. But for those of us who are trying to be disciples of Jesus, what we're coming to learn is, is that this reality that God was showing John can only be known and validated and established as genuine by experience. You have to take the test. You have to say, am I going to fight tooth and nail for how this little cubicle looks or not? Am I willing to ruin someone's day or maybe even someone's career? See, these are where, these are where all the rubber begins to meet the road. And in Jesus' explanation of the world, a day will come when there'll be no more hunger of all kinds, no more thirst of all kinds. This is a beautiful, simple story of the intention of God, him creating human beings. They fall. God tells these human beings, you are now going to work by the sweat of your brow. This is what it's going to be like for you to make things work in humanity. And then we get to Jesus, and Jesus says, look at the lilies. They don't toil or spin, which means you don't see them gruntingly trying to make themselves look nice. Your Father accomplishes this for them. So work by the toil of your brow. Jesus said, a day's coming. If you'll put, in fact, it'll come for you now if you'll put your life into my kingdom where you won't have to toil and spin in that uh, um, sort of curse way. And then what we see at the end of the story is, all done. No more hunger, no more thirst. The capital R reality has won. So as we have our moment of quiet this morning, um, I'm going to ask you to put your stuff down and um, maybe bow your heads or close your eyes, whatever body posture works for you, just to think deeply for a moment here. And let's wonder together this morning Can you see your life as you're presently experiencing it in the hands of Jesus, not in the hands of the powers? And thinking of our appointed psalm this morning, what might it mean to you that grasping concepts about God is maybe not as important in discipleship as knowing that God has his grasp on you. Can you see your life the way you're presently experiencing it in the hands of Jesus, not in the hands of the powers? And what might it mean for us to live out that confidence and trust What might it mean to walk in poised ways that are grounded in the assurance and trust that comes out of that vision that God gave to John? 